Come on, you have to do better than that. Now, Christmas is coming up, and I don't know about you guys, a lot of you are probably stressing about presents and how many presents to buy um, and, and last minute shopping for all these things. If you have a big family, God bless you, uh, your bank account will be stretched. Uh, but I want you to remember this. Remember the reason for the season. I know that rhymes and a lot of people say it, but I truly mean it. In this busy time where we're running around doing things, remember why we celebrate Christmas. Don't let the enemy distract us from making it look like it's something else besides the great provision. And that will be my series for the next few weeks, the great provision, uh, the great provision. And obviously I'm talking about Christ. He's the greatest gift that we've been given. And, and leading to that Christmas service, I want to share a few things that the Lord has put in my heart. So I'm going to go, today's message is titled The Desert Test. If you're, if you're taking notes, write down The Desert Test test. So I'm going to read a bunch of scriptures. And these scriptures that I'm reading, I want you to follow along on the screen. And if you're listening to this on the podcast, just uh, you can hear the, the reading of the scripture. And I want you to get the context of uh, the message that is going to be shared today. I'm going to be focusing the message on Exodus chapter 16. But to get a bit of background, I'm going to read uh, a few other passages. So let's go to Exodus chapter 14, verse 29 to 31. Then I'll read Exodus chapter 15, verse 1. Then I'll go to Exodus chapter 15, verse 20. Then Exodus 15, 22 to 27. Then Exodus 16, verse 1 to 7. And Exodus 16, 26 to 27. Let's read. So I just want you to be silent now and follow along as I read. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. Take note of who saved them. And Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. They saw it. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in Him and in Moses his servant. I'm going to read chapter 15, verse number one. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted, both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. And Exodus chapter 15 is just the song of Moses and the Israelites. And at the end, verse 20, the Bible says, Then Miriam the prophet, Aaron's sister, who is also Moses' sister, Long story, it's a bit complicated, but uh, Miriam is the sister of Moses and Aaron, because Aaron and Moses are brothers. So Miriam is the sister that watched the basket float away in the birth of Moses. So she's apparently a prophet. She took a tambourine, I know it says timbrel there, but she took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women followed her with tambourines and dancing. Why? Because they witnessed a great miracle of the parting of the sea. Let's go to chapter 15, verse 22 to 27. So now they're led out of 
uh, out of Egypt, and they crossed over to the other side. And this is what the Bible says, verse 22. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. For how many days? For three days. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. Uh, the Hebrew language is closely associated with the Ethiopian language. Uh, the same word we use, the same root word, merer, which is bitter. But mara, when they went, they came to this particular uh, portion of water, it was bitter. They could not drink it. That is why the place is called mara. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood he threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. There the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them, and he put them to the test. He said, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, if you pay attention to his commands and keep his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. That's a revelation Jehovah Rapha, a name of God, the God who heals you. Then they came to Elim, where, they, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped there near the water. Now, it's after this that Exodus chapter 16 picks up the story from there. Let's go to Exodus 16, verse 1 to 7. The whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sin. Which, in which is in between Elim and Sinai. One, sorry, on the 15th day of the second month, after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Take note of that. The Israelites said to them, <laughs> this is what they said, check it out. If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food that we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for the day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. And on the sixth day, there are to prepare what they bring in, and this is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. That is because he commanded them to not collect on the Sabbath day. On the Sabbath day is a day of rest. So on the sixth day, they collect twice as much, but every other day, they collect only what they need for that particular day. So Moses and Aaron said to the Israelites, in the evening, you will know that it, is, that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? And then I'll read this amazing portion of scripture, two verses in verse 26 to 27. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be nothing. So God specifically gave them this instruction. Do not go out on the sixth day I mean, on the Sabbath day, because there will be nothing to collect. But check what this says, verse 27. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. 
amazing portion of scripture. Let's pray and get to the word. Heavenly Father, your word is enough for us. In an age where opinion is supreme, in an age where our generation does whatever seems right in their own eyes, may you raise up a generation who have not bowed down to the gods of this society. May you raise up a generation who take high regard of your word. May you raise up a generation who are not led by feelings, by emotions, by opinion, but are led by the truth of your word. Lord, we hold your word in high honor in the midst of us. We pray that you speak to us through your word, for your word is truth, and your word can change the deepest of places. We give you the undivided attention. Spirit of God, have your way. Speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Before I dissect this story and get into the, the, the juicy parts of what God is speaking here, I want to tell you a little bit about Moses, uh, God's chosen instrument to lead over two million people out of a land of slavery uh, uh, in a land that was foreign and not their own. Moses, his whole life was a test. Uh, matter of fact, if you see the life of Moses, he lived to be 120 years. And his life, the key turning points in his life, it is in 40 increments. So in 40 years, uh, something significant happens. The next 40 years of his life, another significant thing happens. And then the last 40 years of his life is the greatest test that he went through. But from the moment he was born into this world, Moses came at a time where there was a heavy decree in the land of Egypt. You see, the, the Israelites were numerous and they were, they were just... They were just becoming more and more, and Pharaoh wanted to stop that. So he put a decree in the land that every male child that is born through the Israelites is to be killed. And the midwives were instructed, whenever you check, the, after the birth, whenever you check if it's a boy, make sure you kill it. But these women feared God, said they didn't obey the command of the king. And he made another ruling and he said, all right, what I want you to do is to throw every child, every male child, to throw them into the Nile River and make sure that they perish in the river. So Moses was, was birthed at a time of difficulty. He was birthed in a test. He was born at a, at a difficult time. I want to speak to you today. I want to speak to those who might be here or watching or hearing uh, through the podcast. You, you might feel like Moses. I was born into mess. I was born into a dysfunctional family. I was born into abuse. I was a broken home. From the moment of my conception, yo, yo, what I can testify for you is that I was born and it's as if my existence is meaningless. It's as if from the moment of my birth that the enemy wanted to kill me and to destroy me. I want to encourage you if you're that person in this place that, that Moses is someone that can relate to you. I want to speak to those of you who grew up without a mother or a father. Those of you who should have died in sickness and disease in your childhood. Moses, you are not an accident. You were born for such a time as this. Young adults, I want you to know that when God made Moses to be birthed at that very moment that he did, it was not an accident. Yes, he was born into a challenge. Yes, he was born into a test, but he had purpose behind him because God is the one that ordained his birth. Moses is literally then raised up in the home of his enemy. 
In the home that put an addiction to kill the boys, Moses, by God's divine hand, is raised up in that very house. We know that Moses was well educated in the Egyptian wisdom and that he was mighty and powerful in speech. You didn't know that. You know the murmuring and stuttering Moses. No, but when he was in Egypt, he was eloquent in his speech. He was powerful in his speech. And if you want to know where I got this from, Acts chapter 7 verse 22. But Moses knew that although he was raised up in a wealthy, uh, 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 in, a, in a palace, in, in the king's household, Moses knew that he didn't quite fit where he was. Moses knew that he grew up without a, uh, he grew up at a place where he was not fitting and was not his home. He knew that his people were the slaves of that land. So Moses attempted to help his people one day at the age of 40. He attempted to help his people. He saw a Hebrew man, an Egyptian man fighting. And when the Egyptian man was beating the Hebrew man, he stepped in to help. And he killed the other Egyptian man to help his fellow slaves. Something that he knew could get him killed. But his attempt to help backfired on him by the Israelites rejecting him. In fact, they said, who do you think you are, Moses? Do you think that you're a ruler and a judge over us? So Moses, knowing he's not accepted by the Israelites, the next day finding out that word has spread out about what he has done by killing this Egyptian, he knew that Pharaoh now will be after his life. So Moses knows only what he can do, which is to run away. He flees And he's on the run for murder. He arrives in a town or in a city called Midian where he met this woman and he he was invited to their house and he married one of the women there and he lived in Midian for 40 years. So at the age of 40, he encountered a test and now he's in a land named Midian far away from his own people, far away from his mom, far away from his birth parents and his brother and his sister, and he's growing up in a foreign land. I want you to know, can you imagine the stuff that Moses is feeling at this very moment? He's not accepted. He's not valued. He's rejected. He's feeling like an outsider. He wasn't fitting in Egypt. He tried to fit in among his people. They rejected him, and now he's living completely far away, far away. His birth being a test was not enough. His whole life up to this point was a test. It was during these years that I, that, that once powerful Moses, that, that Moses that was mighty in speech was humbled. And, and, and I believe it was this time that he, he, he developed that stuttering problem that he later on had when God encountered him. You see, people are not the way they are just because it's just like that. It was a man that was mighty in speech, went through some tests, went through some stuff that not only humbled him, but he developed some some things, some baggages, some labels. I want to speak to you today. If you, through the tests that you've been, have developed some baggages, some burdens, some things, that some labels that people have put upon you. See, Moses was now known for his stuttering problem. He was no longer confident in speech. He was no longer mighty as the person that he was when he grew up in the house of Egypt. Moses now is 80, and God encounters him. And Moses' last years, from 80 to 120, was the third testing time of his life. 
the greatest testing time was him leading a bunch of people that rejected him formally, leading them outside of slavery and bondage. So the 80 years of testing prepared him to, for the greatest test that he would encounter <coughs> in his last 40 years in this world. The next thing that I want to share with you after I've shared with you the leader Moses, I want to share with you the Exodus. Uh, this is, this is a, a famous story that I don't need to really elaborate on. But God delivers his people after 400 years of slavery. Uh, there's a reason why I'm going back. Because I want you to get the context of, of the stuff that is happening in Exodus chapter 16. 400 years of slavery until finally they cry out to God. And God hears their cry and he says, I'm going to go down and deliver my people. Like I showed you a couple of weeks back, he says, I'm going down, but he sends a man. That's how God works. God comes down and he helps others through us. You are the hands and feet of Christ. God uses us to be the solution into this world. You were never created. If you're a Christian, you were never destined to be part of the problem. God created us to be part of the solution. The world that we're living in is not our own. Young adults, let me tell you this. If I can just rip my heart out and show you, this is not your home. So stop living like you're permanently belonging here. We're just passing by. Paul said it like this. The house that I have in this body, it's just a tent. Young adults, I want you to know one thing. The life that you have here, just like Moses had, is a test. Matter of fact, the life that we have here is a test. Even like Moses, his whole life was a test. I believe that our whole life is also a test. It is a test of what we will do with Christ. It is a test of what we will do with his spirit and the assignment that he gives us. After 10 plagues that demonstrated the power of God, Pharaoh finally lets the people of God go. Then the miraculous of crossing the Red Sea takes place, which is Israel's most important event in history. God made a way to deliver his people from bondage and slavery to lead them into the promised land. Powerful declaration of God's future plan of ultimately freeing people from slavery and bondage to sin and death through Christ Jesus. So we can see God painting a picture of what he will do through his son, Jesus Christ. After the Israelites crossed the sea, they saw with their own eyes what the Lord had done and they feared and trusted God because they saw it with their own eyes. Moses and the Israelites then sing a song of victory with dancing and tambourine. Isn't that often the case where in the moments of victory, anyone can give praise? Anyone can jump. Anyone can dance. Anyone can give praise and glory to God because we're celebrating something that is victorious. It is very easy to dance and celebrate when you're winning. When things are going right, when things are aligning in your life, when things are going beyond what you expected. You don't need to tell anyone at that time to lift up their hand to praise God. It is an automatic generated response. Anyone can do that. It is when things are going well, it is easy to celebrate, it's easy to be thankful, it's easy to smile, it's easy to be passionate, it's easy to be on fire. It is easy to become a member of a winning team. You tell me, 
if you have followed any sports, if you have ever selected a team because they're losers. No one does that. Everyone selects a team because most, I won't, I won't make a very generalized statement, but most of the cases, we select a winning team. Uh, I had a friend, I won't mention names because now things get recorded, but I had a friend who changed sporting teams almost every year because that person will be vo- uh, going for a particular team that's winning that year. Some of us are probably like that, but we don't like to be part of the, the losing side, part of the, the, you know, in this generation, you know, we call it vibe killers or something. You know, we don't want to be part of, part of vibe killing side of, of just people just, you know, they're not just, they're always just there negative and that. No, we want to be on the winning side. We want to be on the side where we celebrate. We want to be on the side where we have a good time. See, the Israelites just saw with their own eyes the greatest win man has ever seen. And they now know they can trust God and Moses, his servant, leader. Things are good so far. They cry out to God. God says something, he does it. God says something, he does it. I want you to know when God says something, he does it. God doesn't give a suggestion, he does it. God, I remember saying this in prayer once, God doesn't have a plan B. This will set you free, some of you. God does not have a plan B. Why do we need a plan B? In case our plan A doesn't work. Friends, I want to tell you, God doesn't have a plan B. Because his plan A will always work. If God said that this, this wall will split and you will walk through it, then guess what, baby? You will walk through that wall. You see, when God says something, he does it. The Israelites didn't accept it, didn't believe it until they saw it with their own eyes. So they celebrated the win, the greatest win that man has ever witnessed with their own eye. Imagine walking through dry piece of land with water uh, uh, on your right and left with the fish. You can even probably see the fish swimming in it. I mean, it was a great phenomenal miracle that they saw. And then they went with their first test after three days of their celebration. Three days. They arrived to the waters of Mara. They grumbled when faced with a test. The first miracle after the Exodus is significant. God is letting the Israelites know this first miracle that God does in, this, in, the, in, in, in healing the bitter water is very significant. We see that the first plague was to turn the Nile into blood while they were in Egypt. So I don't think it's a coincidence that God's first miracle is turning a bitter water into sweetness. It's as if God is making a statement. I was against the Egyptians, but I am for you. Don't you think that I will be against you as I was with them because I am a God now who is for you. The piece of wood that God showed Moses to throw into the water that turned it from bitter to sweet is also interesting. Because thousands of years later, it was a man that was hung on a piece of tree, on a piece of wood that took the bitterness of sin and gave us the gift of the sweet, sweetened life that came through Christ. You know, another fascinating thing is that the problem of mankind also began with a tree. And it had to be solved on a tree. It was in this test that God revealed a name of his that they never knew before. He said, I am the God who heals you. I am Jehovah Rapha. He said, you need to know something. When you go through a test, you will have a revelation that you never would have had had you not gone through that particular test. You know, it is often in a test that we discover God on a deeper level. 
Today, I'm going to mess up your mindset on challenges. What you used to dread, you're now going to wait in anticipation. Because when you know the divine purpose of tests in our life and why they come, you will know that God, you, you, your prayer life will change. You'll say, God, bring it on. God, I'm excited for the next thing. You know, I used to have a different perspective on tests and challenges. I used to cry and say, God, I don't want this. Take it away. This is too hard. I mean, I want it easy. You said you're going to do this and I want God to be. I'm like, I have a different mindset now. I know now that the tests that come in our life are ordained by God with a mission behind it. You will never go through anything for just the sake of going through. But everything that come in our life has a purpose behind it. What we think are unnecessary inconveniences that happen in our life are actually holding a revelation of God that you would never have known had you not gone through the test. Let's see some of the revelations of God through testing times of different people. In Genesis 17, 1, the Bible says, When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and he said, I am the God Almighty, I am El Shaddai. He gave him at the age of 99, when he was so difficult to believe in the promise of birthing a child, that he's waited 20, over 20 years in anticipation, waiting on God. God came at the very moment where he's physically unable to produce what God had promised. So God says, this is a test that you've been going through. So I'm going to reveal to you a name, uh, Abraham, that you never knew that I had. I am El Shaddai. I am God Almighty. There is nothing that is too hard for me. What you deem as difficult, what you deem as hard, I am the God who will make it possible. And you will know this name for this day on. Genesis 22:14. You know about Abraham's test to sacrifice his one and only son. Uh, an analogy of what Jesus was about to do. And God stopped him because he wasn't a sufficient sacrifice. You need to know that the only sufficient sacrifice to take away the sins of the world is Jesus himself. But in, that, in the midst of that test, Abraham knew he had to go through that test. And when he went through that test, he had a confidence in God. He said, I don't know why I'm going through this test, but I know that there is a purpose behind it. In fact, in Hebrews, it tells us Abraham believed God this much. He, he, he reasoned in his mind, even if I kill my son, God will raise him from the dead because the promise is attached to that son. And God doesn't fold back on his word. So it was in that time that God revealed his name, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord, the provider. In Judges chapter 6 to Gideon, it was in a test. It was in a testing time where God was saying to a weak man who God saw in a different way as a brave man, God challenges him and, and, and Gideon doubts him and God reveals to him a name. When Gideon realized that he was talking to an angel of God, he was, he was afraid that he's going to die and God gave him a revelation. He said, I am Jehovah Shalom. Judges chapter 6 verse 24. The Lord is peace. It was in this testing time that Gideon knew the name of God, that he is the God of peace. Abraham, Moses, and Gideon all discovered these names of God in the moments of testing. That's just a little side note. Now let's go to the main story, the desert test. So they're in, the, in a short time, after three days, they murmured a little bit. They complained God provided for them. He gave them a revelation of his name that they never had. Then they went into an oasis where there was palm trees and plenty of water. And, and they had a time of resting. But God has still 
He had to still show them a couple of things. So he takes them and leads them through Moses to the, to the desert of sin. Now, that name, don't let it deceive you, doesn't, it has nothing to do with sin as we know sin to be. It's just the name of that particular desert. It doesn't, it's not connected with anything with sin. But this is where the test, the true test happens. They're now in the desert of sin, and it has now been one month. I want you to take note. Only one month since they saw the greatest miracle that man has ever seen with their own eyes. It's only been one month, but the food that they carried with them out of Egypt, all of a sudden is depleting and running out. What do you do? What do you do when you are in a desert and you run out of your resources, when you run out of food? What, what are the things that, that come to mind when we are in a desert situation and the resources that we need to sustain us no longer exist? I want to speak to those that are in a desert season in their life or those that will be. Because I promise you, if you're a follower of God, this is what the Bible says. Those who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So if you want to follow Jesus, but skip every time, dance and use tambourines and, and life be easy. You don't go through anything. That is a false gospel. If anyone preaches that gospel, that is not the gospel of the Bible. Jesus said, follow me. Yes, you will be hated. You will be persecuted. They will hate you because of me. You'll be called all sorts of things. But that is the cross that we bear. I'm preaching so good. I'm preaching so good. I'm being blessed by this. You know, a desert is a very dry place. The Lord spoke to me as I was preparing this. And I truly believe there's people in this place. You're in a desert season in your life. A desert is a very dry place where there is no life. There is no life. It's a place of nothingness, a place where hope, joy, and faith is depleted. It's, it's, it's wherever you look, it's just, it's just nothing but heat. It's just nothing but, but just sand. And it's just nothing but just, there's, there's no hope. There's, there's no oasis that are, your mind begins to play tricks on you. You think that you see, you see an oasis, palm trees with water. But when you arrive there, there's nothing else. I don't know if you've ever driven on a hot day in a car, but you see these waves on the road. And, and, and it seems sometimes you begin to see images. But a desert is a place where there's no water. There, there's no life. It's not a pleasant place. It's not a, it's not a convenient place. It's not a place that we enjoy, but it's a place where it's necessary. You have to understand that desert is part of God's plan. That is why when Jesus was called, Father spoke from heaven. And the Bible says the Spirit of God led him into the wilderness. Uh, because deserts are, 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 are set up by God. Your desert seasons, I want to I encourage you. The enemy is being lying to you. You think it's there to destroy you. But God has sent you into some deserts in your life to save you. A very dry place. I want to speak to those who are in this place or who might be listening. You're in a desert place in your life. It was God that led them in the desert. He led them to the desert to test them. I want you to write that down. We are led to the desert to be tested. The desert is the testing, the testing place of God. Desert seasons in our life, they come to test what is truly in us. 
I want you to write that down. The desert seasons in your life are there to test what is truly in you. Because anyone can say, hallelujah, praise God, I believe God, when victory is just experienced. But I take you to a desert and let's see what's going to happen. Let's see what comes out from the inside. You know, in a test, it is so, so, so powerful that whatever we proclaim in our mouth, it's truly, truly seen in a test. Anyone can dance and sing in moments of victory in life. What will truly show you who you are and where you are as a person is when you go through some deserts. It was only one month before the Israelites witnessed the mighty hand of God delivering them from the impossible situation. And now they begin to grumble and complain against what they thought was Moses and Aaron. They were ultimately complaining against the Lord. But they thought they were complaining against man. I wonder how many times that we think we're complaining against someone else or against our jobs or against this when we truly are complaining against God. Because it's God that provided those things in our life. And when we murmur and complain, we're thinking we're against people, but really we're against God. Can I put some scripture into this? The Bible says that that David fell with Bathsheba. And he was confronted and he humbled himself and he admitted his sin. And the Bible says in Acts chapter 51, he prayed this prayer. And, And David said something fascinating there that stuck with me. He said, against you, God, and you alone that I have sinned. David understood something that we need to understand today. David had a revelation that my hurt for someone else, that me torturing someone else, that me sinning against someone else is ultimately sinning against God that created that person. See, they thought they were grumbling against Moses and Aaron, but they were checked by Moses and Aaron and by God. He said, no, you're complaining and murmuring against the God that delivered you. I want us to observe quickly their grumbling. This is what they said. If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food that we wanted But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Uh, You might have read that and just skip through it and say, yeah, that's pretty bad complaint. No, that's that's shocking. (laughs) Let's just really dissect that and, and hear what they're saying. Did you hear that? He says, if only we died in Egypt, really? Really? They wanted to die with the plagues that were imposed on the Egyptians? That's that's the very thing that they cried for in that season of pain in that season of slavery, now they're saying we should have died there. Notice also their inaccurate portrayal of their past. You know, when a test comes, we begin to talk about slavery like it was a good thing, you know, like the good old days. When a test and challenge comes, you know, I'm living for God and and this, and I'm going through this, this, this. And then we begin to see our past of slavery in sin, in bondage. Oh, I remember the good old days when I, when I didn't obey God, but everything was going right and smooth. Yes, my friends, everything will go right and smooth because we are under the governance of the God of this world, which is Satan and his kingdom. But they began to talk about the good old days. But notice the messed up interpretation of their past. They said this, and we sat around a pot and meat and ate all the food that we wanted. That's not true. The history of the Egyptians and how they treated, even when you read it in Exodus chapter 1 and 2, you see the harsh treatment of these Israelites. 
They didn't have the luxury of eating whatever meats they wanted. They were slaves. They were, they were driven harshly. They were made to work hard. But they, they, they began to, because of this test that they're enduring, they began to see their past in a wrong, distorted way. The deception of Egypt or the world, because Egypt represents the world, is that it feeds you a pot of food so that you take comfort in its bondage of slavery. I'll say that again. If you understand what I'm saying here, it will liberate you from having a wrong mindset of thinking that your old life, apart from God, has anything to offer you. That is a lie of the enemy. I'll say that again. The deception of Egypt or the world is that it feeds you a pot of food that is very temporary, lasts only for the day, so that you may take comfort in its bondage of slavery. What amazes me is these Israelites, they overlook the greater pain and bondage of slavery for a pot of meal. What they were focused about was the meat, which they didn't really have, and they overlook the greater serious condition that they were in, which were they were slaves. They were driven harshly. They were whipped. They were, they were under control of these Egyptians. But that's what, that's what Satan does. The pot makes you overlook the greater problem. Their past bondage was somehow justified by its temporary meal. They failed to understand that the God who delivered them is more than able to sustain them. This is the test that they failed. They thought that the God who delivered me from such condition is not able to sustain me in this desert of sin. In this harsh condition, when a little bit of testing came, mind you, the food didn't even run out yet. But just because the, the, the pressure got a little bit, they all of a sudden began to doubt the sustaining hand of God. I want to just quickly mention the nature of a one. A test is for the person being tested and not the one giving the test. I want you to clarify very, very carefully. God tested them not so that he knows. God tested them so that they know. Number two, a test exposes the true state of a person. No matter how much you brag that you're good at maths, <laughs> let me put you in a room where you have no calculators and it's just you and your head and we'll really see whether you're good at maths. So tests expose the true state of who we are. You can say, I love Jesus, I worship him. Oh, Jesus chased me down and all these things. You know, we sing all these songs. But when you walk out of this room, that's the test. In your workplace is a test. Let's, you encounter a rude boss and then we'll see what really comes out of your mouth. You see, life is a test and, and we have to recognize that a test exposes the true state of a person. Number three, a test is the gateway to the next level. There is no way that someone will go from grade one to grade two without passing the test. So if you want to grow, if you want to go from where you are to where you want to be, a test is the gateway to the next level. There are three types of tests that I quickly want to mention. Number one, the self-inflicted test. Don't confuse this with the second part. These tests that come in our life, it's our own doing. Yes, we chose to do those things. Don't blame God. Don't blame others. Don't blame Satan. Take ownership of that. Number one, the self-inflicted test. Number two, the God-permitted tests that we go through. These are the tests that I want you to enjoy. These are the tests that I want you to have anticipation over. These are the ones that you might not understand why you're going through it, but understand that the God who's allowing you to go through it, he permitted it. And if he permitted it, he has a reason for it. And number three is the Satan-attempted trials that come in our life. 
Notice I said Satan attempted. Because God will even allow him, and Satan will attempt. He will attempt to attack your faith and all these things, but the key word that I want you to hold there is an attempt. He will attempt, but he will not succeed. Because the God who's in us is greater than the God that is in the world. Let me move on. God in his mercy overlooks their murmuring and complaining and gives them some instructions. How many times do we murmur and complain and God provides, us, provides for us anyways? The instructions were simple. Bread and quail will, will be provided every day. They are to collect every day except on the sixth day, which is to collect twice as much because Sunday or the Sabbath day, whatever day it was, will be a day of rest and no one is to go out and collect. They were clearly instructed to not go out and to collect on the Sabbath because nothing will be there. That's what God said. Nothing will be there if you go. So when the bread from heaven came, they said, what is it? That's what manna means. Manna means what is it? <laughs> they, they failed to recognize the provision of God. They're like, that's not how I expected the bread to be. God, it came in a manner like I did not expect it. God, I need some money. So we get a call for a, for, for a cleaning job. And we're like, what is that, God? I said, I need some money that gives me high-paying income. And, and you're giving me a cleaning job? We fail to recognize the provision of God becomes it, because it comes in an unlikely package that we didn't expect it to come. The other thing about God's provision is that God did his part. Notice that. God did his part, but there was a part they had to play, which was to go out and collect it. So God provided the meal, but if they never went out of the house to collect it for that day, they will starve to death. How many of us are starving? Because we fail to be obedient to the part that God expects us to play in his provision in our life. Because we just want to sit down. We just want it to come and fall on our laps. And we don't want to seek God. We don't want to pray. We don't want to sacrifice. And yet we want to be in the place where God wants us to be. You can, you can hope and wish your whole life, but you will never end up in the place where God wants you if you don't do the part that you play. God does the hard part. He, he, he rains down the manna. God, God brings the quail from the wind. He brings it. What you have to do is very easy relative to what he has done. But yet we fail so many times to follow simple instructions and to do our part. The other thing about God's provision Another important lesson, sorry, that we learn about this story is that the greatest lesson God wanted them to learn was to trust him for their daily need. He wanted them to be dependent on him daily and not on anything else. That was the, the purpose of this test was this. Every day, I want you to know that I am your provider. Every day, I want you to know that I sustain your life. That was what God was trying to communicate with the Israelites, but they failed to understand. He wanted them to be dependent on him daily. 1 Timothy 6, 17. This is what Paul said. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. What do we depend on most? Are we depending on our jobs, our careers, our family, our friends? What are the things that you've anchored on in your life? your talents, your gifts, your abilities, what are the things that you are saying, I have security in this thing? God will shake it because what he wants us to do is to come to that point where we understand that those things are not where I am anchored in. Those things are, are not where I am, I am secured in. I am secure 
in my dependence on God. I could lose my job, I could lose my career, I could lose people, but I have him. And if I have him, he will sustain me every single day of my life. You know, this is what the story that Jesus comes to my mind. He feeds the 5,000. Then they look for him because they had food. And they said, God, Jesus, we want, we want this food. We want this food that makes us never hungry again. But Jesus wanted them to have a greater revelation. He said, you're chasing me because your stomach is full. But he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And if you, if you have me, you'll never go hungry again. You see, we often want the temporary provision, but God wants us to know a spiritual reality and truth that he is our person. He's the person that we need to depend on daily in our life. Last point and I finish. Lastly, verse 27. Let's go to verse 27. Lastly, verse 27. This is amazing. Are you all enjoying the word? Exodus 16, 27. So God said, do not go out on the Sabbath. Nothing will be there. This is what fascinates me. This is human nature. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it. But guess what? (laughs) They found something. They found that God is actually true to his word. There are two people. There are two kinds of people that I want to finish off in this story. There are those that take God at his word and those that want to experience it to know whether God is telling the truth or not. Um, God says in his word, do not commit adultery. There are those that say, God, I trust your word, and there are those that will go through it to experience whether God says is true or not. God says in his word, um, do not lie to each other. There are those that take God at his word and there are those that want to experience it for themselves to get it. I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it. Many years ago, this young lady, she was speaking to me. She said, yo, yo, you always tell us your story and you've been through a lot and all these things and I hear you, I hear you, yo, I hear you that in the world there's nothing there, that there's nothing the world can offer us, this, this, that. And, I, and I've heard you teach on it many times, but she said to me, looking at me in the eye, she said, but I want to experience it for myself. I never planned to share that, but just just came to me in my mind. How sad is it? When they could have trusted God at his word, and God became angry if you read this story. He said, how long are these people going to take contempt for my word? God already told them there won't be anything there. Nevertheless, some went to check. We need to trust the word of God and not want to experience it before we trust him. We must trust what God said before we find it to be true in our own experiences. People still try to do the same thing, trying to find fulfillment in places God said there will be none in. Bow your head and we're going to pray. I feel the power of God in this place. I know I didn't get a lot of amens and claps, but I know the Spirit of God is speaking to your soul and to your spirit. I know the Spirit of God is in this place. I hope that I preached it a fraction, a fraction of the way the Spirit of God is preaching this to me. 
But I know that some of you are going to be delivered in this place. That some of you are going to be set free in this place. The lies that you've entertained. The things that you've believed. I want you to know that you're in a test. That life is a test. Your teenage years was a test. Your young adult years is a test. Your adulthood is a test. Parenting is a test. Your career is a test. Every single place that you're in, you're in a test. And the test is designed to show you where you are. Because God loves you too much to leave you in that condition. God wants you to grow. God wants you to come out of that. God wants you to have a revelation of who he is. God wants you to be dependent on him. God wants you to trust his word and not experience it to know it. There are so many promises that are waiting for you to just trust God. You don't have to experience it. I don't know who I'm speaking to in this place. You don't have to go through it to test God. Trust his word. Trust his word. If God said there will, there will be no provision on that day, there will be no provision. If God said do not go out on that day, do not go out. I know I'm speaking into your spirit right now. I know there's no fancy music playing in the background, but I believe this is a holy moment. This is a holy moment where you are before God. And every single one of us in this room have to pray this to God individually. Where are you? Apply the desert test in your life. Where are you? What has the test brought out of you? I love this because this is not a finger pointing moment. This is just a reflection moment of our own lives. How do you respond in times of testing? Do you run away from God, deny God, reject God, say God doesn't exist? How do you respond? That will show you where you're at. And God puts you in that test. If it's the test that he permitted, God puts you in that test to show you, not so he can know, but to show you where you're at. He wants you to come out of that. If you're in this place and you have self-inflicted tests that you're going through, things not of God, just you personally have made bad decisions and you've gotten yourself in sticky situations, stop blaming, stop pointing fingers, and why not you choose to end, to end that today and say, God, I don't want to go through. I don't want to go through pain and all these things when I can just simply trust in Your Word. I don't want to experience it before I believe it. And if you're having attacks from the enemy, you're living for God, you love God, but you're having warfare on every single side of, you, of your life. I want you to be rest assured in the promise of God. It's an attempt but it's not the final word. Yes, you might be like Job going through many things, but God has the final word in your life. Do not give up. Do not throw in the towel. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time that you've given us. I've faithfully delivered what you've put in my heart. And I pray as we meditate on this word that you would change who we are as we lead towards Christmas and, and ponder on the greatest provision that you have given us, which is yourself, Lord Jesus. Help us to see the other provisions in our life. Help us to trust you for our daily needs, for our daily provisions, Lord. Help us to trust your word. Help us in the test to humble ourselves and not be arrogant and prideful. Help us to have an honest reflection of what you brought us out of and not a distorted view. Help us, Lord, to not be in deception, but to see clearly, Lord. I pray for everyone listening on this podcast 
that you would speak to their spirits, that you would speak to their soul, and that you would lead them into a quiet place, that in that testing, they'll cherish your word and the time they have with you. Lord, help us to see who you are in the times of testing. Bless the rest of this week, we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Awesome.